0: I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C., We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, White Lash, Donald Trump, 45th President of the United States. In part one, Trump's 53%, the white American women who voted for him. What does that mean in terms of women and solidarity? And in part two, the rise and rise of global white nationalism, from Brexit in London to the presidential election in the United States. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Sofia Quintero and Stacey Ann Chin. Sofia Quintero is a screenwriter, television producer, and novelist. Sofia has published five novels. Her last was Ephraim Secret, and her new young adult novel is the critically acclaimed Show and Prove. stacey Ann Chin is a Jamaican-born Brooklyn poet, a playwright, an activist, and a mommy. stacey Ann co-wrote the Tony Award-nominated Deaf Jam Poetry on Broadway. Her work has been featured in The New York Times and Washington Post. Stacey Ann's debut memoir is *The Other Side of Paradise*. Right now, Stacey Ann is performing in *Motherstruck*, her one-woman show that chronicles her journey to motherhood. Welcome, welcome, ladies.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
0: White lash, Donald Trump. He won the corrupt billionaire businessman, the bigot, the boaster of sexually predatory behavior towards women, the man caught on tape, the wall builder. He. One. Donald Trump, elected president of the United States.
2: This is CNN Breaking News. We want to welcome our viewers in the United States and around the world. This is a new day indeed. President-elect Donald J. Trump. A stunning comeback.
0: Wins in places and by margins that made this victory deep and decisive. The world reeled at the news. Shocked. Stunned. Hurt. This was a white lash against a changing country.
3: It was a white lash against a black president in part. And that's
4: the part where the pain comes. I kind of push back against the advancement of African
2: Americans, of Hispanics, of women, of Muslim Americans. It is a a mourning
0: moment for for those people. uh, And it it is a moment filled with fear. How did this man win? How did the polls get it so wrong? Who voted for him? then the blame game started and the blame game was swift from mainstream media to social media threads and blogs they would say not as high a turnout for clinton from people of color as there was for obama the exit polls though told the real story and it was one about whiteness white supremacy white nationalism white fear it was as van jones has put it a white lash 64% of white men, working class, and college-educated voted for him, and 53% of white women, working class, the working poor, and college-educated voted for him, too. Comedian Samantha Bee from Full Frontal summed up who put Trump in power perfectly.
5: Once you dust for fingerprints, it's pretty clear who ruined America. White people. I guess (laughs) ruining Brooklyn was just a dry run. The... The Caucasian nation showed up in droves to vote for Trump. So I don't want to hear a word about black voter turnout. How many times do we expect black people to build our country for us? White people. This is the worst thing we've ever. No, I'm sorry. That's a very high bar, but holy.
0: A series of think pieces followed with headlines like the myth of female solidarity in the New York Times, a paper that also talked about the move from what they called Gloria Steinem feminism a Hillary Clinton vote, to commodity feminism, a Donald Trump vote. Ultimately, whiteness won. And the price people of colour and frankly those same 53% of white women will be paying is yet to be tallied. Let's talk whitelash and Trump's 53%. Stacey Ann Chin, let me start with you, your thoughts.
6: I'm still reeling from the reality of what has happened in America. And I'm not reeling because I'm surprised but reeling really, because of the, uh, you know, as you said, the emotional, economic, sense of self, you know, sense of self-worth, all of that is yet to be tallied in the years to come. I remember watching the results rolling because I, like much of the media kind of reported, it was going to be a Hillary win. So there was you know, a little bit of nervousness, but general inclination to believe that we were going to follow the wave of having the first black president voted in for the U.S. elections, followed swiftly by a vote to put a woman in the office. And I don't know, it was just kind of, I think, maybe a metaphor for what is actually the reality here, where so many of us who are on the left and who believe ourselves to be representative of a more progressive America. We live in the bubble of New York and couldn't have imagined that a man who had admitted to sexual assault on tape in his own words he didn't know he was being taped so there's an assumption that truth was being uttered this man who has said so many negative things about mexican americans who have said so many negative things about i don't know i think it's easier to count the number of people he hadn't said anything negative about and so to have this man elected into office there's a part of me that still doesn't understand doesn't know what to do with it physically. And here I am again caught up on the hamster wheel of trying to explain racism to myself and try to explain racism and sexism to my daughter and trying to make head or tail of it. And I don't think that I have yet. I think that my brain is working to lay it out as a map, but I think that the emotional cost of it is still pretty much like a heavy weight, a big boulder sitting on my chest. And I don't quite know what to do with it yet. Except to keep talking, except to keep gathering, except to keep protesting, except to keep on with the fight. I mean, all I'm doing right now is trudging and plodding and, and pushing my body in the direction that I know that it should be going. But I must say that I'm deeply, I'm, I'm floored.
0: Mm. Sofia Kindero,
6: I'm still reeling from the election. I was
1: out the night of the election with friends wanting to watch the results as they came in, thinking that I was about to witness another historic election, and it is. It just wasn't the one that I anticipated. And once I started to get that sinking despair in my stomach that this was not going to turn out like I expected, I went home. And I live in New York City, and I wanted to be home. I didn't feel safe being out. And the next morning when I realized that Trump was going to be our next president, I called out sick. I could not handle it. And there was a level of it that was extremely personal, not because of also what might happen to me or what might happen to people I love, but because this has been a very polarizing election, it has caused a lot of rifts among people who purport to be on the same side, but also I know I have family members who supported him, and I think at one point it's really important that we start to have those conversations as well and figure out how to get through that. So I'm still trying to look at the really painful lessons that we are getting from the poll data and the different analyses, and trying to digest it, and trying to find a sense of agency on how to resist. And hindsight is 2020, and I think a big clue of what was coming down the pike was the way that many Hillary Clinton supporters erased the black women that blazed trails in the arena of presidential electoral politics. I never saw white women invoking the name of Shirley Chisholm, and even women who supported Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein forgot seemingly, that it was only eight years ago that Cynthia McKinney and Rosa Clemente ran as a ticket for president and vice president, and that, that was historic, as two women of color on the same ticket, particularly two black women. And I think, you know, if you're a woman of color who's committed to gender liberation, whether or not you identify specifically as a feminist, the time you spend believing that the average white woman is in solidarity with you is very brief, and that's just the reality. I think it's almost like a twisted, tragic rite of passage for any burgeoning some of color to go through. We rarely get firm footing in our identity that people devoted to gender equality before we encounter that first white woman who weaponizes feminism as a way to dismiss racial justice. And even when we're fortunate enough to know white women who are intersectional in their practice, we see right away that they are not the rule, that they're the exception. So mm-hmm. having a veteran poster say that Democrats never win white women That actually really surprised me. It was not something that I not explicitly know, but then when I thought about it, it was something that I actually have lived. And I think for me, I'm trying to think about, you know, I want to regain a sense of agency and what are the next steps? And I think the next steps have to be strident and they have to be powerful. And I think a line has to be drawn first within feminist spaces. I believe that the tent of feminism has become so big that it has no boundaries and it's losing meaning. And there has to be a point where we say, if you are not anti-racist, you cannot claim to be a feminist. You are rather a patriarchal woman invested in leveraging other social constructs to gain access to power, usually afforded to men, without questioning, never mind challenging that power. And that could be you're being white, that could be you're being heterosexual, you're being cisgendered, you're being middle class, you're being able... This is what, for me, Ivanka Trump invites. This is, to me, what even artists liberal artists like Taylor Swift and Lena Dunham embody. So while I know that there are different types of feminism, I don't believe that commodity feminism is feminism at all. And one of the things that brought us here is we become complacent behind this myth that there can be racism without racist and it also behooves us to stop believing that there's such a thing as feminism without feminism.
6: The word of the era these days is intersectionality. You know, anyone who is on the front line of any kind of social justice work understands that there is no kind of social justice movement that can push ahead without acknowledging the coalition that can only be viewed through intersectional lenses. For so much of my adult activist life, I have lived in this body that is so many things all at once. And, you know, I remember in the late 90s when I came here and I was speaking so loudly about being a lesbian, it meant that that kind of conversation, that kind of articulation, that kind of utterance meant that I was locked out of Jamaican-American spaces, locked out of Jamaican spaces, and that I was at odds. I was, you know, experiencing that brutal rift that Sophia just talked about between myself and, and people who I considered my people. And so when I started talking about being Jamaican and what it meant to be queer and Jamaican at the same time, I lost a lot of people who felt that they were deeply Jamaican. In the African American community, when I talked about race, I felt very much at home. Whenever I talked about sexuality, then I felt as if I was not so at home. When I talked about being an immigrant, then the African American community wouldn't necessarily always be as enthusiastic about hearing about that story. And certainly when I talked about being a woman in black anti racist spaces, when the conversation about sexism, the conversation about misogyny, the conversation about sexual assault and and women's rights and women's bodies. I felt like those conversations were not welcome. And so I've lived in a perpetual state of a fractured identity where I felt as if I was always code switching. I was always trying to figure out what room am I talking to and what will most deeply resonate with these people or what would most challenge them, that I couldn't just speak from a place of just being all the time, that I always had to be aware of what state I was being in and how that would be received and what battles I would have to fight or not fight based on what I articulated. And so in this moment, intersectionality has kind of proven itself to be the lenses through which we are now seeing how whiteness, how white supremacy, how white male supremacy has kind of trumped everything You know, and this man couldn't have a more appropriate name for what is happening now. Like his identity, his misogynistic, white, privileged, wealthy, xenophobic, all of those labels that you can apply to the Trump brand, all of those labels now trump everything that we have been fighting for, everything. And, you know, uh, it's a very interesting thing to watch the white people who themselves are deeply liberal and have fought alongside me for decades to see them struggle with seeing their counterparts as xenophobic and racist and misogynistic, or seeing themselves as such when you're in conversation with people who say, you know, I couldn't vote for Hillary, even if they won't say... I will vote for Trump, which they did. They don't say it outright, but I know I can't vote for Hillary means that they are considering or they voted for Trump. And so that mix of them being unable to state a pro-white supremacist position puts them in the state of like almost being unable to speak truth, which is why the polls were what they were. People lied. Essentially, people mm-hmm. lied. And that's what we have to ask ourselves. What is it that we believe now that will cause people to speak in public and say, I am absolutely anti all of this behavior, but then in the privacy of the voting booth would go in and vote for someone like Trump? That is the question we have to answer. Why is that conversation not happening? Why are people lying? Why? I think what possibly here is going on is that
1: whiteness is a hell of a drug and one of the last <laughs> side effects is a dangerously porous relationship to the truth because there are a lot of folks who believe he will make jobs without having outlined a plan. They believe he will defeat ISIS without lining a plan. But if you say, well, what about this wall he wants to build? Oh, he's not really going to do that. What about the threat to Roe v. Wade? He's not going to overturn abortion. How do we explain this really terrifying, flexible relationship to the truth and wanting to parcel out what you will believe he will do and what you won't believe he will do. That's particularly
6: what I'm grappling with. I think you've essentially asked me the question that I'm struggling with in this very potent way. What is their relationship to truth, and then what is our relationship to truth? Haven't we always had to shift the truth in order to exist inside of these walls called America, inside of walls called supposedly developing nations, and more truthfully, in nations where white people are the majority? We have always had to. I became a naturalized citizen in the last three years because I wanted to participate in the political system. But in order to do that, I have to walk into a room and say, I will pick up arms against any other country, including the country in which I was born, in order to be sworn in as a citizen. I have to promise this in a way that people who are born here in America don't have to promise. I have to be complicit in all kinds of things that I do not agree with in order to be a person who lives here. Ani DiFranco says that we're complicit just by breathing the air here in the U.S. and in Europe and in places like South Africa where so many white people who felt we have to dehumanize ourselves in order to be complicit with these ideologies that we in our very heart every day in the way that we deal with the people we love. We would never be complicit to these ideologies but you have to sidestep. You have to say okay I'm going to live in America. I'm going to participate in the American political system even though we know what it does to the rest of the world. Isn't that a truth that we all have to to live in and navigate every single day that we breathe and live and pay taxes and swear allegiance to this country?
0: I am reminded that just because there are elements of the United States that are progressive in their politics does not mean that they are progressive in their emotionality. And I think that This is less a battle of truth versus lies than it is a battle of not measuring the power and the weight and the depth of a politics of emotionality and the ways in which that would manifest. And what was very interesting to me, there was a piece of American history that I came across that made me reimagine and rethink this. And it was the Bacon Rebellion going all the way back to 1676 in Virginia. And Nathaniel Bacon was a colonist in the Virginia colony, and he was the instigator of what was called the Bacon's Rebellion. He was a poor white man who wanted in with the rich white elites. They wouldn't let him in. And so he, together with a whole group of other poor white working men and indentured servants who were also enslaved Africans, aligned recognizing that they had mutual interests as the working poor against a rich white male elite. And this rebellion was made manifest. And the thing that was powerful about reading about it is that what the rich elite did as a result is they responded by hardening the racial caste of slavery. And the point was very simple. Divide the two races, not by giving that poor working white man the land that they craved, the wealth that they sought, but that they would at least not be on the same level. They would feel superior than those indentured African slaves to whom they had originally had a political and literal. Alliance. And so they didn't have any more land, they didn't have any more wealth, they didn't have any more houses, they didn't have any more anything. What they now had was an identity that was about the illusion of superiority given them by the elite class. You go all the way back to 1676, roll all the way forward to 2016, and you see those same emotionality politics at play. Because I think about the delusion of the left being in solidarity with people of color, because that's never been where the work is, and I've always believed this, that the work of the white left has been to deal with the white right and to deal with their own family members. It's always been that. And so the notions of sisterhood or community are established by doing the work of dismantling white supremacy where it lives most powerfully, and that's in an emotionality politic. And I've always felt two things. One is that there's a kind of a delusional element of the white left. That's the one thing. And the other is straightforward cowardice, the unwillingness to roll up their sleeves and do the real work for them, which is to dismantle white supremacy in the places that it sits the firmest. So I kind of think of Donald Trump as It is not that Hillary lost, but that the politics of emotionality that exist, going all the way back to 1676 won. They won then. They've won again and again and again and again and again throughout American history. And they won today. So the question then becomes, why would we be surprised? If you look at another part of American history, any part of progress is read by whiteness as oppression. And in a society where the progress of one equals the oppression of another, there's always white lash followed by progress. We saw that with the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which gave disenfranchised African-Americans the right to vote, which meant really serious electoral, political, And we all know that when it comes to politics, local politics can make all kinds of changes within communities. And that was followed immediately by the 1971 War on Drugs. And the War on Drugs literally, literally regressed the gains of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, spiked mass incarceration massively, felony disenfranchisement, and it decimated those same votes that had been acquired by the African-Americans. So. If we are students of history, and history has taught us the way this goes, my question to the white left is, you fail to do your work, you fail to measure the history that you keep claiming you stand beside, and you did what they did. you reached back to emotional safe spaces that have so little to do with the progressive politics and have much to do with the needs to continue to maintain the illusion of superiority. What happens in that space?
6: I think we have to talk about consequence. I think that the fact that we elected our first black president in the last eight years, right after George W. Bush, which felt as if it was a time under which the left was under immense duress. I think the election of President Obama really, I think it was the beginning of what we now term as this white lash. You know, Van Jones came up with that term. The beginning in terms of, like, my own understanding of it, my own experience of it in modern times, because I wasn't around in the 70s to see what was happening with the war against drugs. I only know that from a historical perspective. And so now I have to ask myself, as a woman of color, as a queer woman, as a person who identifies as a a leftist thinker, a person who understands and and, um, believes that progressive change is the only kind of change that will make life better for all of us, What are the consequences of this 53% white women voting against Hillary, against my interests? What are the consequences of such a thing? Do we then go back into rooms with this majority white left and sit with them and again go back to the same narrative of, okay, here we go again? What do we ask of them? What are the safeguards that we put in so that this doesn't keep happening, or or, or do we just have to accept it as part and parcel of the work that we do? I have found myself really having a hard time sitting down with the white left, who I have for the last decade and a half called Comrades. Even though I understood that there were different places that we had challenges, I felt in my heart of heart as if we were kind of like committed to a common cause. And now the emotionality of what this means for myself and for my black daughter, it means something different for them and their daughter. So I wanna know, I wanna ask the questions like, what do we do with this anger? What do we do with this fractured sense of unity, this fractured sense of a common purpose? Are we at the beginning of the drawing board again? Like, what do I do with this anger that prevents me from having what feels to me like a conversation that would move us forward? What do I do with this kind of arrested emotionality that I'm really just holding on to? And one day it's depression, the next day it's anger, the next day it's depression, the next day it's anger. I mean, maybe it's all the same thing, but I feel as if I'm walking in a stupor, like unable to make sense of whether I will erupt or whether I will withdraw. I'm reflecting a lot on, on this white lash because I think the reason why a lot of
1: people are still reeling is not because we thought that if we kept Trump out of the White House, that somehow we had defeated white supremacy. If Hillary had won, we would still be grappling with white supremacy. If Bernie Sanders had won we would still be dealing with white supremacy. I think the reason why people are really, is because we wanted to believe that at the very least, with all the work that we still have left to do, that the election and the re-election of Obama moved the dial a little bit, that we thought we had gotten to a point that was irretractable. But it's interesting, because if we want to talk about white lash, the white lash began on the left in the Democratic primaries. If you start to see... Some of the ways that white men in particular who were Bernie Sanders supporters were engaging people of color and their critiques and their questions. I've been increasingly having conversations about the problem of white performance, of allyship, where the intention is not to put anything on the line but really rather only to insulate oneself from challenges to one's essential goodness. This is how neoliberalism and racism without racists often plays out. You know, I'm not a racist. I voted for Obama. So now I find myself wondering a lot how much of the white vote for Obama in the previous two elections was performance of allyship. How many people voted for Obama literally did not have skin in the game, and so it was safe for them to vote for him because Obama was not a progressive candidate. There was no way he could be a, a truly progressive candidate and win the White House twice. He was progressive only in in relative terms. And so this white lash that we are grappling with, first of all, is always there. It's just, it's now in the light as more people are emboldened in being honest about how they truly feel, not how they think, but how they feel about people of color, about queer folks, about poor people, about immigrants. And what's interesting to me is that White Lash is global because a lot of the rhetoric during the campaign about Trump was that, oh, if this man is elected, the world will laugh at us. The world will laugh at the United States for electing this man. But now that he is coming to power, what he is doing is completely aligned with global whiteness and the project of reasserting white supremacy in the world on a global scale.
0: The people may indeed resist and rebel as they have done before.
1: People rebel
7: them take up arms and I rebel against them People that rebel Them take up arms and I rebel against them God thinks no right God thinks no right God thinks no, right. no, no. no right Oh Lord God knows things no right Yeah yeah. People are so far And anything they want them say them are go go far I just to live it's getting rougher No time to use them now, no breakfast or no supper While the leader's meditation is Total power, greed and selfishness No really care about the hungry or the shelterless Much less the needy or the fatherless They're only using us as pawns in their game of chess And all them are gone, they never think, say The people who don't want, fed up of them All them are gone, they never think, say The people who don't want, fed up of them No people rebel Them take up arms and rebel against
0: them People are rebel them take arms and rebel rebel them. We've talked about what allyship What does this mean for white allies? What do you all do now? Pulled into the parking
4: lot Parked it Zipped up my parka Joined the procession of marchers In my head like is this awkward? Should I even be here marching? Thinking if they can't How can I breathe? Thinking if they chant What do I sing? I want to take a stance Because we are not free and then I thought about it, we are not we Am I in the outside looking in Or am I in the inside looking out Is it my place to get my two cents Or should I stand on the side and shut my mouth No justice, no peace Okay, I'm saying that They're chatting out Black Lives Matter But I don't say it back Is it okay for me to say, I don't know, so I watch and stand in front of a line of police that look the same as me, only separated by a badge, a baton, a can, a mace, a mask, a shield, a gun, with gloves on hands, that gives an alibi in case somebody dies behind a bullet that flies out of the nine, takes another child's life on sight.
0: That was part one of White Lash, our focus on the election win of Donald Trump. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all women of color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Sofia Quintero and stacey Anchin. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas... South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes. Damn, a lot of opinions, a lot
4: of confusion, a lot of resentment. Some of us scared, some of us defensive. And most of us aren't even paying attention. It seems like we're more concerned with being called racist. Than we actually are with racism. I've heard that silence is an action, and God knows that I've been passive. What if I actually read an article, actually had a dialogue, actually looked at myself, actually got involved? If I'm aware of my privilege and do nothing at all? I don't know. Hip hop has always been political, yes. It's the reason why this music connects. So, what the this happens to my voice if I stay silent when black people are dying And I'm trying to be politically correct I can book a whole tour, sell out the tickets Rap entrepreneur, build his own business If I'm only in this for my own self-interest, not the culture That gave me a voice to begin with then this isn't authentic, it is just a gimmick The DIY underdog, so independent But the one thing the American dream fails to mention Is I was many steps ahead to begin with my skin matches the hero, lightness the image America feels safe with my music and their systems In a suit of me perfect, the role I fulfilled it And if I'm the hero, you know who gets cast as the villain White supremacy isn't just a white dude in Idaho White supremacy protects the privilege I hold White supremacy is the soil, the foundation, the cement And the flag that flies outside of my home White supremacy is our country's lineage Designed for us to be indifferent My success is the product of the same system That let off Darren Wilson, guilty. We wanna dress like, walk like, talk like, dance like, yeah, we just stand by. We take all we want from black culture, but will we show up for black lives? We wanna dress like, walk like, talk like, dance like, yeah, we just stand by. We take all we want
0: from black culture, but will we show up for black lives? Time for part two of White Lash, our Donald Trump focus, the rise and rise of global white nationalism. Right now, protests are erupting across America in the wake of the Donald Trump victory and the cabinet he's putting together. Coalitions are being built between Jews and Muslims, the alignments of mutual interests against white supremacy. On November 19th, the National Policy Institute held its annual conference in Washington, D.C., There were more than 200 attendees at the Ronald Reagan building, and the NPI president, Richard B. Spencer, gave the closing speech. Here is some of what he said.
5: Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! No one will honor us for losing gracefully. No one mourns the great crimes committed against us. For us, it is conquer or die. To be white is to be a striver, a crusader, an explorer, and a conqueror. We build, we produce, we go upward. And we recognize the central lie of American race relations. We don't exploit other groups. We, we don't gain anything from their presence. They need us and not the other way around. Yeah. Within the very blood in our veins as children of the sun lies the potential for greatness. That is the great struggle we are called to. We are not meant to live in shame and weakness and disgrace. We were not meant to beg for moral validation from some of the most despicable creatures to ever populate the planet. We were meant to overcome, overcome all of it because that is natural and normal for us. The press has clearly decided to double down and wage war against the legitimacy of Trump and the continued existence of white America. But they are really opening up the door for us. America was, until this past generation, a white country designed for ourselves and our posterity. It is our creation. It is our inheritance. And it belongs to us.
0: Richard B. Spencer there. Now that clip is from an Atlantic documentary profile of Spencer that's going to premiere next month. Spencer has called for, quote, a new society, an ethno state that would be a gathering point for all Europeans, unquote. He's called for, quote, peaceful ethnic cleansing, unquote. Isn't that an oxymoron? Watching the YouTube clip, you actually see white men doing the Heil Hitler Nazi salutes. Now, the national policy institute describes itself as quote an independent organization dedicated to the heritage identity and future of people of european descent in the united states and around the world unquote spencer is part of what is called the alt-right movement and they're part of the far right essentially white nationalists and indeed around the world we are witnessing the rise and rise and rise of global white nationalism from the Ronald Reagan building in Washington DC to England and the victory of Brexit, the vote for England to leave the European Union. That was a bloody campaign that waged verbal war against immigrants and laid all the struggles of working white English men, in particular, but also women, at the doors of multiculturalism. In England, the Brexit win was analysed as short-sighted. It was a victory for whiteness. Trump said the American election would be Brexit times 100 and the vote to abandon the european union was a shock to the rest of the world but it signified a shift across europe in hungary there's an increasingly authoritarian prime minister Viktor orban and he has started building a wall to keep out immigrants and his government is holding migrants in detention camps where guards have been filmed flinging food at them as if they were zoo animals in italy The anti-immigrant Northern League, led by a politician who has attacked the Pope for calling for dialogue with Muslims, is polling at more than three times its 2013 level, making it the country's third most popular party. And in Finland, the Finns party, which wants to dramatically slash immigration numbers and keep out many non-Europeans, is part of the government. Its leader, Timo Soini, is the country's foreign minister. In France, where we have seen legislation against the hijab and hijab-wearing women be arrested for rocking bikinis on the beach, there, Marine Le Pen, who runs an increasingly popular French far-right party, tweeted, and I quote, "'Congratulations to the new president of the United States, Donald Trump, and to the free American people, equating whiteness with freedom.'" Hmm. Marine Le Pen is the daughter of França Le Pen, the father of France's white nationalist movement. An article in Vox describes their platform as, quote, a right-wing radicalism, somewhere between traditional conservatism and the naked racism of the Nazis and the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, that has attracted widespread support in countries with wildly different cultures and histories, unquote. Brexit in the UK, the rise and rise of the far-right politics across Europe, in Hungary, Finland, France, Italy, and now the election of Donald Trump. Demographically, white supremacy is dying. Politically, it is on the rise. Let's talk the rise and rise and rise of global white nationalism. Sophia Quintero, your thoughts?
1: In that piece that Toni Morrison wrote for, um, I believe it was The New Yorker, she talked about white Americans are sacrificing themselves and abandoning their sense of humanity in order for this to happen. And I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling very much with this. There is so much effort right now to humanize the people who have been supporting these various different political actions across the globe and speaking here specifically in the United States with the election of Donald Trump. We're trying so hard to humanize folks who support him while we say, you know, they're supporting this person who even though we really doubt that he really has their interests at heart. And I have to say this impulse is really disconcerting to me. Um, because here we are in this moment in time and we are so invested in complicating and understanding people who would see us dead. And I'm still soughing out what my role is going to be and what contribution I want to make and what I want to do. But there's one place where I'm really clear. It's not where I choose to put my energy. It's not where I choose to put myself at risk. This is where I call on white people who fancy themselves allies to step up and do the work. Because I don't know if it's the issue that white Americans are sacrificing themselves and that whites are abandoning their sense of humanity because we're dealing with people who don't see people of color as fully human. And so if that's the starting point, then I don't know where we go from here. Some friends and I were having a discussion a couple of days ago where we talked about the importance and power of storytelling, especially on the global stage now more than ever. And one of my friends posited that marginalized communities have to tell our stories And bring them to these audiences, these audiences that would vote for Brexit, these audiences that would support Donald Trump, because our stories humanize us to them. And by doing that, we're going to change their minds and we're going to change their hearts. And I honestly really question whether that's a really valuable use of our time, because I no longer believe that this is about white superiority, because it's not the perception, oh, we're all human. We, just as white people, are superior. This is about, I'm human. And you're not. And this is why they can gun down our children. This is why when they see our children, they don't even see children. So I'm really, really grappling with this pressure to, like, stay in dialogue with people who want us to hit. And made it very clear that they are going to fight tooth and nail to remain in power. And that's just really what I'm struggling You know, the same people who have cried that the U.S. should never negotiate with terrorists are not asking elected officials to compromise with a man. Who actively recorded and mobilized supremacist impulses in the electorate to win, who received the endorsement of a domestic terrorist organization, and who have given supremacist positions of power to the administration. And the same US that's not to negotiate with terrorists has a militarized police force in North Dakota unleashing water cannons on peaceful, prayerful protesters who themselves are a nation within our nation and are defending sacred ground. And we have politicians from Obama all the way down who are being silent and passive. So by asking, people of color and women and LGBTQ people to give this man a chance and requesting (laughs) requesting that we negotiate with terrorists. So, you know, our own
6: house is not clean, it's rotting, and it's rotting around the world.
0: Stacey Enshin.
6: I'm a strong believer in we need many different strategies, many different ideologies, many different approaches, many different kinds of voices in this great push towards a more equal world. And so, I was very comfortable and very happy to give all of my 20s and uh, most of my 30s to being the young, angry revolutionary who would scream and pound and curse and kick and uh, say the unsayable and strike out at folks, whether they were obvious enemies or sleeping enemies or veiled adversaries. And so I moved towards my 40s. I had a kid. You know, I found myself becoming more mellow. I tapped into my quieter, more negotiable self. You know, I I found myself in conversations with people who, in my 20s, I would have burned them at the political stake. So I, I felt I was maybe a more adult version of my progressive self and, you know, was very happy to leave that to the young firebrands who, in their 20s, were now screaming at rallies and shouting in places and doing that work that I so deeply enjoyed and I thought and I think necessary and I thought to myself you know now that I want to I have to be home most evenings so I can't go to a rally every day because I can't drag a five-year-old out in the cold every single day after school to go to a rally so now I'm home mostly I'm watching Curious George and I'm helping her to learn her letters and her numbers and so this Donald Trump debacle comes at a time when I find myself wanting to rest more, be more on the sidelines of the struggle to be working behind the scenes, to be more of a kind of like big sister to those on the front lines. And this damn madness has me wanting to go to the front of the line and scream and shout and want to go out every day. And I I am surprised at how few of us are as angry or as committed to the process of being in the streets every day and screaming and really opposing, opposing, opposing many of the voices I hear talking about holding Donald Trump accountable is about like, let's watch what he does and let's see how we can protest and be ready when he does something. But I don't understand why we're waiting because he has already done so much mm-hmm. and it is apparent as Sophia said, that the people who voted for Donald Trump do not see us as human. And I've been at this for two decades and more now, and so I'm very tired. And I don't really want to be out there in the same way that I was in my 20s, but it seems like this is what we have to do. We have to garner these angry feelings that we have. We have to get out there and we have to kind of... This is like a a battle. This is a front-line battle. If this man and his ideologies, even if his policies are different from what he said he would do, now he doesn't want to build a wall, now he doesn't want to lock up Hillary, and all of the things that he's walking back on. The, The existence of this man in the White House at the head of our government, the overt endorsement of him as the voice of the U.S the country in which I live, you know, it just makes me like, I feel like we have to do something. I feel like we have to do more than quietly protest on Facebook. It's a whole other animal that we have to take on in this show once about the fake news and the the rise of the alt-right and how much space is being given to voices who so many of these people who call themselves progressive believe and agree that these ideologies are, are damaging to us as a nation. Yet here we are because they're making their mighty dollar. I feel like I'm just, really quite despondent and at a loss as to where I should be. Like, should we be having like all those 40 odd million people who voted for Hillary or who voted against this divisive, xenophobic, sexual predator? Like, where are you? Why are you not out in the streets? Why are your voices not heard? Why isn't there a bigger uproar about this? Why are we waiting to see what he will do? The man has said what he will do. The man has done many things. In his whole career, there's evidence of him being all of the things that we say, let's wait and see if those things come true. They've come true already. And here we are, just talking, I think we need more than talk.
0: There has been protests every night since Donald Trump has been elected. If the call is for people to be on the streets, people have been and are going to the streets and have been on the streets every night in different cities across America every night. I have been counting, not even just in America, but globally because of the concern of what a government like that means for the rest of the world. What America then does with that kind of government for the rest of the world. But I really take Sophia's point about reimagining what resistance will look like in these next four years. There's this saying America always has we don't negotiate with terrorists, except when they are white political terrorists. And then we're invited to wait, to privilege, to humanize, to negotiate, to conversate, and to communicate. And so the question then becomes the desire for people of color to consistently think that if we were just more human in terms of whiteness, things would be okay. And the reality is you're looking at a continued history where that's the truth. We have never been fully human to whiteness. But I think that's the wrong question. The question becomes is who are we to ourselves And how does that then manifest in terms of resistance? Because the reality is demographically white supremacy is dying and politically it may be on the rise, but the nature in which people of color amass, the question is, what are the global strategies going to be in order to say, this is a kind of political last hurrah? Are we saying there is a willingness to bring down white supremacy and what kinds of strategies are we willing to engage to have that happen? I think me, like so many of us, I was sitting, I'm talking to you from Accra, Ghana. There has been huge support here for Donald Trump, huge. So many of the people that I know, love, respect, break bread with, go to brunch with, hang out with, have all told me in all kinds of ways how and why they support this man. And I have been speechless, appalled, strident, angry. We've argued, it's gone on and on and on and on and on. And I think the shock and the hurt has taken time. I mean, it's almost coming towards the end of November. This is our first show on Trump because I literally could not even get myself together to do the research and nobody could talk. And so we are at the beginning stages of imagining a resistance for this next four years. So I definitely invite us to be kinder to ourselves and to each other and to be patient with ourselves and each other, but to really reckon with reimagining allyship in really specific ways and being much more willing to make demands of an allyship that has to go deal with your cousins, your cousins being all the other white people that voted for Trump. That's part of what they have to deal with. The question for us is going to be, what is our resistance going to look like? And I still think that that is being figured out. I still think that is being figured out. So closing thoughts from you both, starting with you, Stacey-Ann.
6: I think it's important that we continue, you know, as you said, the demand of our cousins and ourselves, a more visceral, a more present, a more measurable response. I think it's easy to lay your body down under the covers and to live in the kind of stunned paralysis that this can lead us to. And I think that myself included, you know, I've gone to two protests and it's been nearly two weeks and so there's a part of me that I would have liked to have seen more from myself. And, and I understand, a part of me also understands why I'm quiet and why I, I don't watch the news as much or why I don't research as much as I used to or why I turn away from these facts that make me feel so uh, deeply unhuman or without value. If I have one thing to say to people, if I have one thing to say to myself, it's to get up move out of the stupor, pick up your pen, pick up your guitar, pick up your voice, raise your fist, move one foot in front of the other, and get moving. And this I say with with, with great love and, and great understanding for, as I said, the stunned paralysis that holds us all in its grip just now. I feel like we need to move. I feel like we need to get up. We need to shake this, and we need to move, And we need to gather and we need to find each other. And then we can do the figuring out while we are together. But I think many of us are choosing to to stay out of the fray, to be in the quiet of our homes, to be away from the noise of it, to be away from the pain of it in order to survive it. And I, I think now is not the time for that quiet. Now is the time for noise.
0: Sophia Quintero, closing thought.
1: Well, one thing that I would like to see us more do is, uh, that we haven't been able to talk about, but is really important and has been a lot on my mind, is one of the places that we have not spent a lot of time addressing while we've been busy blaming each other on the left is not holding the news media accountable for the way that they normalize this man from the beginning of his candidacy. So there is a, this great push, a necessary push right now to never ever normalize his ideologies and his practices and his policies, but the truth of the matter is is that the news media began to normalize him long before he even won the endorsement of the Republican Party. And while all the attention they gave him, there was other things that did not get attention. Not only about him, things that should have came to light from the beginning of his candidacy, but also other things that are really important. For example, I think in July of this year it was estimated that 7 out of 10 cops who were killed by civilians were killed by white men, and that was buried. And at the same time, last year, the number was only 59%, and the news medium mostly has been silent about this. So now is the time for us as consumers to really leverage our power in those ways as well, and we need to have those boycotts. Those are other ways that we can take decisive, proactive, firm action for the kind of world that we want to have that doesn't require us to sit on the sidelines while we figure out where we can make our greatest contribution. There's a lot of things that we can do right now.
0: So if you call the U.S. home, maybe home is now politically where it feels like the hatred is.
7: Home is where the hatred is. Home is filled with pain and it might not be such a bad idea if I never heard. Never went home again.
0: From home as a place of hatred to a word for the millions of people of color dealing with this new day. Folks are saying prayers, asking God, Allah, whoever you call to show us a way because it feels like politically devils are trying to break the world down. And white America may feel that it is only at war with terrorism and racism. But more than anyone else, it is at war with itself.
3: We have war, we have war with terrorism, racism, but most of all, we are Cause the devil's trying to break me down You know what the Midwest is? Young and restless, the restless Might snatch your necklace The next these might check your Lexus Somebody tell you who Kanye West is I walk through the valley of the shower, death is Top Lord, if you alone, i leave you breathless Try to catch it. It's kinda hard getting choked by detectives. Yeah, yeah. I check the method. They be asking us questions, harassing, arresting us, saying we eat pieces of like you for breakfast, huh? Y'all eat pieces of. What's the basis? We ain't going nowhere, but got suits and cases. A trunk full of <laughs> rental car from Avis. My mama used to say only Jesus could save us. Well, mama, I know I act the fool, but I be gone to November. I got the to move. I hope Jesus, me now. And, I don't think
0: and we wish you healing. Kanye West. That's your hour. Thank you to Sofia Quintero and Stacey Anchin. Thanks ladies. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. I want to hear myself. Yeah. Thank you to The Spin production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes. It's under The Spin 1. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther
8: me Like cops and paparazzi, those that don't, don't copy, yeah, just copy properly. No. Everybody's no. so policy, no universal no equality, way. responsibility, policy no. to survive economically. Oh. Some people do it comically, of freedom, equality, invest your money properly. People owe me your policy, intellectual property, stealing, stolen, commodity, so control, sorry. and robbery, so told, so lack of commodity, can copycats, bother me, mine all black, follow me, honesty, honesty, honesty. All these jokes, economy, but there's no autonomy. Yup, it's food, you I
2: see you looking, but you better take, take it easy. easy. And tell your goons that they, they better they take it easy Here comes the rocket launch on. Mm-hmm. Take it easy
4: Take it easy You
2: better take it easy it take it Too, easy. too, too, too easy. much ex-mommy Take it easy Good with the sex you be like Take it easy, take like. take 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 it easy. Mommy take, take, take it easy Take it easy You better take it easy You moving bricks but you better take it easy Here's a tip you too flashy. <laughs> I don't tip twice, but your best friend, DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't lassy. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man, that's ketchup. Picture cleft, get in the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause oh my I'm a top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity. I flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. i yeah. get on my scroll with a night, turn a flow. Malcolm X, come out, hit the clue club show. I see you looking much better than <laughs> better I get it you Here comes the rocket launcher Take it easy, take it easy easy. You better take it easy Too much ex-mommy Take it easy Good with the sex, you be like Take it easy Mommy, take it
8: easy Deck it deck it so you know originals get plagiarized, majors, minors, my supervisors, so climbers get scooped. scooping, so applicators, blondes, stupid guys, so wicked so people, choose homicide, yeah. drugs, and society heathen and them, records, bogus, it's bleeding, and negro, and uh, negro, no freedom, no 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 no. angelitos, <laughs> con and chico, chicas, oh, completing them, no. addiction, fiction, bleeding, and capitalism, so it's misunderstanding, cheating, and the ignorance, deceiving them, loyalty is leaving them, got royalty, believing them, eyes open, deceiving them, reconciling, receiving them, reckless, driving them, we leaving them, Matthew and you and Peter, we bout to reconcile, wreck him, wreck and wreck uh, we bout to we're about to reconcile, we bout to reconcile. we're about to reconcile, sci- reconcile, uh, reconcile. Recon- räcon- so fatto. We out to reconcile, Bri- we bout to reconcile Reconcile, rACT- reconcile, yeah, again wreck reconcile with the again We about to yeah. so reconcile, yeah. yeah, We about to reconcile, reconcile out again We
3: about wrap- to reconcile, women with the little again. Yeah 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 stop the track which I thought I wasn't coming. Yeah, right. Been in LA, <laughs> few flakes, few millions. Back with the Fuji, Fuji fighting for a few billions. Double play villain. i boy killing. Any Diddy boy, boy, cash for me villain. Angela, Simone, Michelle, you know them grillin'. Can't fight the feeling when I pull in the SLR. Every girl loves the ghetto superstar. Real hip hop like pinstripe leads. And I got love for my crew like big half for C's. Pullin' squeeze on D's and C's. Man, I don't really wanna do it.
2: Take it easy. I see you looking, but you better take, take it easy. easy. Yeah. So they're they're tell your goose something better take it easy. easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. Good with the sex, you be like take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. We got L Boogie in the house.
8: This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.